0: Acts 15 shows us that there are times that require serious theological debate. Now, simply put, we should always go to battle when the gospel is at stake. So we've been learning that in Acts chapter 15. And today we want to pick up our reading in verse 12. And again, that lingering question. Remember that they came down uh, to... Antioch and began to question uh, in verse, chapter 15 verse 1 they say unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved and we unpacked Paul's uh, debate with them and then beginning in verse 6 a couple of weeks ago we talked about Peter and his defense and his statement on saving grace verse 11 but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will Today we pick up our reading in verse 12, and this is the heart of the decision made at the Jerusalem Council, which issues forth a letter that's going to be sent back to Antioch and read in the church, and there's going to be commonality and unity, so we see up front that we can never abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we should always be charitable and loving to the entire body. Why? so that we will maintain the unity in the body for the glory of Jesus. So that's what you see, beginning in verse 12 of Acts 15. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me, Simeon, or Simon, meaning Peter, has... Related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And when this, and with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. Just as it is written, he's going to be referring to the Old Testament, right? James is going to back up what Peter said by the holy word of God. The debate is going to center around the Scriptures. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James will continue, Therefore my judgment is... That we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them four things. To abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. "...unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden... "...than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell." So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having, part, have, having gathered the congregation together, they, de- they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement." And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And notice what continues. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. That's a lengthy text, isn't it? But that is the outcome... And decision made by the Jerusalem council. So those who have the conviction. That the pharisaical conviction. That you must obey the law of Moses. And be circumcised in order to be saved. They come down with that conviction. And of course the apostles understood. That this was no minor minor doctrinal difference. But the gospel itself was at stake. And we know what happens in Galatians chapter 1. Paul says if an angel or anybody else were to appear and teach a gospel that is different from the one you've heard, let that individual be anathematized. Serious consequences when we move away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think Paul would have had a lot of latitude with non-essentials. Don't y'all? However, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul was as strong as iron. He would not be swayed when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He understood that to undermine the gospel. If you undermine the gospel, folks, there is no longer any good news by which we can be saved. You can't undermine the gospel. So their reports were evidence, A, of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone that saves the soul. Notice how they keep coming back to that, every time they go to share what God is doing, it focuses upon the grace of God working in individuals' lives. So the Pharisees, however, felt that you had to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And the Bible does not teach that. And of course, Peter will give his testimony of the grace of Jesus in verse 11. He relays, Cornelius' experience with him and how the grace of God affected Cornelius' life and how he was given the gift of the Holy Spirit, how he followed in believers' baptism. And it was all by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And since we had Father's Day last week, I felt like it would be good to get you back on track. Are you with me And what's going on? So the Bible says in verse 12 that they fell silent. And Barnabas and Paul begin to give testimony. You notice there's testimony from Paul and Barnabas And then strong testimony from Peter. And then now again you've got Paul and Barnabas standing. And what do they do? They essentially stand up and they endorse their trip to the Gentiles with the fact that God did this. God is the one who extended the grace to the Gentiles and opened the door of faith that the Gentiles could be saved. So we get this picture of Paul and Barnabas standing and talking about how God had worked in the hearts of people, not through outward circumcision, not through Mosaic law, but through the preaching of Jesus Christ and the grace that saves. You know, Peter is a pillar apostle. We'd have to agree with that, right? It was Peter wherein Jesus said to him, Thou art Petros, and upon you I will build my church. And not referring to Catholicism, but referring to Peter... And the fact that he would be the pillar apostle who would first take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we know that about Peter. When Peter spoke, people listened up. Now, Paul would struggle here because they didn't give him the same kind of support to his authority that they did Peter. Why? Because the Pharisees were from Jerusalem. And they would have looked up to Peter more so. And Paul's going to wrestle with this in Galatians when he begins to defend his apostleship. But now you've heard from Paul and Barnabas. But here's another one that stands up and his name is James. We have his testimony. He speaks up. This is James the apostle who is the half-brother of our Lord and who also wrote the epistle of James, right? He would have been considered the pastor, In the first church of Jerusalem. That's where he comes from. He was a pastor among the pastors. He was a man of character and leadership. And Paul will recognize this in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. F.F. Bruce notes that when James said, Listen to me, brothers, everybody would have listened. So he has this air of authority given by God. And the one the Lord has put in authority when he speaks... We need to listen to what the man has to say. And James has something wonderful to say here. He says that all of these testimonies agree with the holy word of God. If you're going to have a debate, and we're going to have a debate even in this church, we need to base everything upon the supremacy of the scripture. And what God has to say. And so in verse 16, he gives us an allusion to Zechariah 2.11. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David... That has fallen, and I will rebuild it in its ruins, and I will restore it. And so, in, in essence, he's giving this to remind us that God will take a people unto himself. Now remember, again, this is a Jerusalem crowd. They would have been more in tune with Peter than with Paul, unfortunately. Wrongly, they should have listened to both of them equally. But notice how James, when he begins to talk about the testimonies... Who does he refer to? He skips over Paul and Barnabas and he says, James has said this, uh, Peter has said this to us. So James highlights Peter's words and he states a marvelous paradox. It's not, it's not just Abraham's race that God, is, uh, that God is taking into himself, but he's also taking in Gentiles into himself and making them people. Of his own name. Aren't you thankful for that today? Yes, God chose the Israelites from the beginning. Genesis chapter 12. But the Bible even says in the Abrahamic covenant. That God would have a people uh, as great as the sand on the seashore. And that we would be involved in that. Not just the Jewish race. But all those who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he basically says that the conversion of the Gentiles. Which we've just heard about. From Paul and Barnabas and Peter, uh, he's saying that all the prophets agree that that's exactly what was going to take place. James doesn't stand up and say, hey, this is my opinion. I agree with these guys. No, he says, I'm going to ground my understanding with the holy word of God. And I believe James would have differed with all of them if the word of God would have said something different. But James runs to the source of it all, which is the Word of God. So if you follow the argument James is making, he's saying that the gospel and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the very restoration of the Davidic kingdom and His dominion over the Gentiles, which led to their conversion. That's pretty awesome statements. I know that can be convoluted and difficult for you to think about. But this is why... He quotes Amos chapter 9. And you can look all these up. But in Amos 9, we we learn this principle that the remnant of mankind may seek him. That David's temple would be rebuilt. That's given for a reason. And it's interesting. The rebuilding of David's tent, as it were, is an image of a fallen dynasty. And what do we know, folks? When did David's dynasty collapse? During the... Babylonian captivity. And so this is racing all the way back that many years to remind us of that. And even during the intertestamental time, which is which time? Between the end of the old Malachi and the writing of Matthew, that 400-year intertestamental time, there was no Davidic kingdom whatsoever. And so the hope of Israel was that one day God would take that collapsed dynasty of David and would resurrect it. That was the hope. The Davidic kingdom would once again extend from shore to shore. It would extend in such a way that Gentiles would belong to God in a restored Davidic kingdom. So interesting enough, James says that the conversion of the Gentiles coming into the church was nothing less than the resurrection of the Davidic kingdom because the Davidic king, Jesus, had conquered the grave. What a a wonderful understanding. So there's a convergence between the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was through his seed, all the worlds will be blessed. Who's the seed? Jesus Christ, and all the nations of the world will be blessed. And in the Davidic covenant, what was the promise? There would be a king on David's throne forever. So, James, man, he's an Old Testament scholar. He knows his Old Testament, and so should we. We ought to know what the Old Testament says, so this is all fulfilled in the present age. Note that. This is all fulfilled in the present age through Jesus Christ the King. The text doesn't talk about circumcision, which was the rite of covenant in the Old Testament. David doesn't mention that. David mentions, and he actually doesn't mention the second coming of Jesus to establish a kingdom. He actually mentions the first coming of Jesus to establish the kingdom. And so it necessitates the Davidic king. And if what James is saying is true, which it is, does that have ramifications for what we believe about the future and about the coming of the kingdom? You know, for, for the longest time, Baptists have been influenced by dispensationalists. Some of you are looking at me strange. But they believe that, God worked through strict dispensations. And when a dispensationalist would read this, they would think that that's something coming in the future. Well, folks, if you read that, you'll note that Jesus' first advent, His life, death, burial, and resurrection started the kingdom of God. It's not something that's going to all be in the future. Yeah, there's the already and the not yet. But let me tell you something, folks. Jesus Christ reigns today. It is His kingdom. And that's why James is saying this. The after these things is after the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. And so he now reigns as Lord of Lords, King of Kings on David's thrones. On David's thrones, so this is fulfillment. This is what James is saying. God is saving Gentiles through the gospel of the Davidic King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's reestablishing The dynasty of the Davidic kingdom. And he's doing it right now. He's doing it all over this world as he's taking the gospel to the ends of the world. Now, notice how this works. They hear the testimony and the explanation. So, what is next? What's the next step? Well, again, James acknowledges the worthiness of Scripture. It is a deduction from the Bible, and it's a recommendation based upon what the Scripture says. Oh, if we could ever get that right in Baptist life. We make our deductions based upon, thus saith the Lord. We don't make our deductions on how we feel, humanly speaking. We make our deductions from what the Word of God says. And James doesn't appeal to his position and say, well, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem. And this is my decision. No, he gets it and he connects it all organically to the Word of God. Did y'all know that we don't have, there's not, uh, you understand that the Bible is one book, not two. But there is, there are people, and there are preachers. And I don't mind calling you his name. Andy Stanley has recently made some way out of line statements about the Old Testament. You agree with me? Absolutely. I'm telling you folks, you got one book, the Bible, not two And Christ is the Lord of the Old Testament just like He is of the New. Right? We need to begin to think Christocentrically about the Old Testament. Because it's a story and Jesus is the answer to the story. It's all about promise and fulfillment. So Jesus, God made a promise in the Old Testament. And all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. And so here's what we're seeing. We're seeing that covenant. We're seeing promise and fulfillment. We're seeing two parts of the same book. And in verse 19, James comes to the conclusion. We cannot burden the people with mosaic regulations or circumcision in order for them to enter the kingdom. It is uh, based upon the grace of God. Let's not take that yoke that Peter mentions above and place it upon the shoulders of these people. Then James lets... He actually writes them this. He gives four regulations. Now, where did this come from? I mean, does this kind of sound a little bit strange to you, being uh, Americans in uh, 2018 of June, sitting in this auditorium and you read these stipulations and things to abstain from? Do you know where this comes from? It's the Holiness Code in Leviticus 17 and 18. This is exactly where this comes from. And what is so interesting is that in this holiness code these were the standards for the Israelites but they were also the standards for the foreigners who would join the Israelites. And who is being brought in and grafted in to the kingdom? Well, in the Jewish mind, it's foreigners. It's us, right? We are the people grafted in. And so it's interesting that When you read, like Leviticus 17, verse 18, you don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time. But it's going to list all of these out for us. And it's important. Chapter 17, verse 8. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent... Of the meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off. Verse ten: If any one of, of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against him. So, notice how James connects the fact that Moses is being preached to you all the time. I mean, he's when when you go to your synagogues, you're hearing some of the things given in the Levitical law, and so the holiness code was not just for the covenant people, but it was also for anyone who desired to be among the people. So James directs them to some basic, fundamental holiness code things in order not to become saved, but as a way of life. Does that make sense? In verse 21, he makes an appeal. This is a fundamental familiarity that every one of those people would have known. And that was... They would have heard the things of God. They would have heard the law of God. And so it's important to see that James is saying. In order for Gentiles to become Christians. They don't need to become Jews. But you also can't remain a pagan. Are y'all listening? I've had people come into my office before. Not here. And basically say to me. I've prayed about it. And... uh, I know I've been unfaithful to my wife, but I'm going to go ahead and marry this lady. God's leading me to do this. Really? Right? So, my statement was, you can be a fornicator or a Christian, but you can't be both. That didn't go over too well. But that's true, folks. If you're saved, then you're changed. Right? No change, no salvation. You can't live a sexually immoral life continually and be a born-again believer. God is going to get you. He's going to get your attention. You're going to repent, and you're going to turn to Christ. That's the way it's going to work. And so James is giving us the way a Christian lives. You can't claim to be a Christian and remain a pagan. And so that's exactly what he's trying to get to them, uh, to, for them to understand. It's the message. You can no longer live like a pagan. The things he mentions are all, all overt pagan practices. He notes, of course, sexual immorality, which is pretty clear. You know, sometimes we ask, well, what's the will of God for my life? Well, in 1 Thessalonians, here's what Paul says. This is the will of God from you that you abstain from sexual immorality. Don't you love that one? You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to try to dig in and figure out what God is saying. It says, this is the will of God for you that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's a foregone conclusion. That's like who's buried in Grant's tomb, right? It is. We know that from the scripture. But these other ones he speaks of were things that would be offensive to a Jew if you sat down with them and did these things. And of course, there were the pagan temple prostitutes. And James could easily be saying, you can't do that if you're saved. That that kind of thing has to stop. He speaks of meat contaminated by idols. What did Paul come to with a conclusion on that? Well, we'll have to dig into that. We'll have to dig into what Paul had to say about meat contaminated by idols. But he basically identifies the practices that were common in pagan lifestyles. And reminds them that they need to abstain from it. But there's a clear-cut difference in the way that James deals with the law and the way the Judaizers deal with the law. I hope you see that from the scripture. The Judaizers and the Pharisees desired that you keep the law as a means of salvation. James pointed out specifics in the realm of conduct for a believer who trusted Christ. So the moral code still has application in the way of life. Don't y'all believe that? Ten commandments still mean something. We don't obey them uh, in order to be saved, but God writes those laws in our hearts, right? He takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh that is pliable, that understands once you trust Christ, there's a certain moral code that should follow that. Now in verse 22, we're doing great, moving right along. Notice it was a greeting of brothers to brothers. Do you think that would have been comforting to those Gentile believers? I mean, they trusted Jesus Christ, and then straight after that they were told, well, you can't be a Christian because you haven't been circumcised. And you're not following Mosaic legislation. Can you imagine the turmoil in the, heart, turmoil in the hearts of those people? But then there's this incredible greeting. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them. And they sent them out. And notice now, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are called Gentiles in Antioch. had to be comforting to know that all these apostles in, uh, at Lifeway no, I'm just being a little funny. These apostles up there in Jerusalem have come down and they've studied this matter and they call us brothers. Not that we needed to do anything else according to the works of the law, but they call them brothers. And here's what they do they're reminded that you are not a fam- part of the family of God because of circumcision, it's because of Christ. But the letter repudiates the troublemakers, does it not? it does they were not authorized to bring that message to them did y'all read that? I won't read it again but it was in the, the narrative they were not told to go and tell them that you got to keep the Mosaic law and following circumcision we live in a culture where no one wants to point out that someone else is wrong if you do that you're in trouble, right? Unless, of course, you're this lady that we read about that has the restaurant that told Huckabee's daughter that she couldn't eat in there this past week. Now, if they do it, it's fine. But if we tell somebody it's wrong, then we're in trouble. But I want to remind you folks, there are people who misinterpret the Word of God and they need to be told, you are wrong. We're not trying to fight you. We're going to be charitable. But there's nothing wrong with saying, that's false, that's not true. And let me show you why... That is the case. So there's not only repudiating those false teachers, but there's full approval of Paul and Barnabas. Y'all see that in the text? In other words, they say, we're going to stand right by these men in this controversy. So not only do we live in a world where no one wants to point out that someone else is wrong, we also live in a day when no one wants to take sides. Why is that? Because nobody else want, no one wants to feel like they're wrong. That's why no one's willing to take sides. And this is true in theological matters often in the churches today, even in SBC churches. Nobody wants to say, you know what, I'm going to stand on the side of truth. And these five or six men are the ones I'm going to stand with. You know why? Because they're telling you a deduction from the Word of God. And here I stand, and I must stand there. It's exactly what we must do. We must align ourselves with people who believe the church truth we commend these brothers to you and we stand by their message would to the Lord that churches in our day would do the same thing when our pastor preaches the word of God he's he's given by deduction what the word of God says it lines up with the authority we're going to stand with our pastor we're going to stand with those who preach and teach thus saith the Lord there's nothing wrong with that as a matter of fact it's biblical to do that They are commended for Christ's sake. And notice what they add. These men have laid down their lives for the gospel. Heretics don't die for the gospel. Okay? But here are men who would lay down their lives for the cause of Christ. In verse 27 we see wisdom. Uh, Some persuaded by the Judaizers could have looked at this letter and thought, Man, this is a forgery. Especially if it had only been delivered by Paul and Barnabas. The church has some wisdom here, and they send others with them to give this report and to give the word of mouth, like Judas and Silas. So, in verse 28, we have the agreement and the recommendation to the church. This wasn't merely uh, their decision. And I love this in verse, if I can focus my eyes here, chapter 15. Notice verse 28 For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Now, isn't this fascinating? There's nothing said up to this point about the Holy Spirit speaking to anyone. Are y'all with me? But the church has met as a body. They're all in one accord. And what did they follow? God's written word. But here, James says that it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to come to you and say... The Holy Spirit told me that you need to do this or that. I'm not going to do that. I don't have the special monopoly with the Lord. But what I do have is His Word. As a matter of fact, that's the only thing you do have. Is the Holy Word of God. Guess what? The Holy Spirit is never going to give you anything apart from what the Word of God says. Never. Never. So what we can agree on as a church is this. When your leaders have gone to the Word of God and we've deducted from it exactly what we should do in any given situation, then we can put in there, not only does it please us, but it pleases the Holy Spirit and Christ who speaks through His church and His Holy Spirit. We can do that with full confidence. Why? Because that's what the Word of God says. And when the Word speaks, Christ speaks. Now, if we're not lining up with the Scripture, that's a different story. But isn't it awesome that James throws that in there? The church is in agreement, but so is the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because the Word of God is enforced here and spoken of. It is perfectly right and biblical to say that once the church has spoken, Christ has spoken. Did you know that's exactly what Jesus means by the statement, when two or three are gathered together in my midst, gathered together, I'm in the midst of them. Now, many of you folks will stand up and pray that prayer, and you don't know what it means. Lord, I'm so thankful that you're in our midst when two or three people are gathered. That always bothered me as a kid. I'm like, what if I'm here by myself? Is God not there? Do you got to have two or three people together before God shows up? Come on. Look, you got to look at context. And what's the context? It's about discipline. The people have gone, the church has gone to an individual that is unrepentant. And Jesus says, I'm going to add my voice to the church. And I'm going to say, you've got to repent of your sin. And Jesus is saying, I'm right there in the midst of them adding my voice to the church to say, when you're in error to the Bible, then you need to repent. That didn't cost you anything, folks. That was free. That was a gift to you today. But that's exactly what's going on in the context of this passage. Of scripture. Jesus stands beside and with his church. When they're living the word of God. And he's adding his voice to us. We stand on the word. And there's a consensus among the people. There's just nothing wrong with saying it seemed good to the Holy Spirit as well. So James says we don't want to put a law on you. Law of burden on you. Here are the necessities. Abstain. you got to abandon these practices. We're, we're revisiting that same letter. Don't go visit the temples. No blood rituals. Avoid temple prostitutes. Live a life worthy of being saved by the master. Right? That's what's going on. They have a congregational meeting and they rejoice. Verse 32. There is, uh, listen to this verse. And Judas and Silas were with themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. You know what that is? That's simply an encouragement for long sermons. Right? Right? Okay, some of you didn't laugh because you'd like for it to be over before it ever starts, right? So with many words, they encouraged him. The emphasis, again, uh, Jerusalem delegates returned home. The controversy settled. But here's what the emphasis turns back to. Preaching and teaching the Word. You know, that's what happens when the church gets diverted, right? When we're dealing with uh, issues, minor or major, the church gets diverted from its mission. And what's our mission? To preach and teach the word and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what they returned and began to do. The power of the church is in the word. The power to grow is in the word. The power to be strengthened is in the word of God. After all of this doctrinal crisis and war, at the end of the day, the church just settled back to doing what God called it to do. Luke chapter 24. Preaching the word. Taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. When we have a controversy today, we've to place. We got a place to stand. And where's that place? That unity is found on the word of God. We have to stand on His word. So we see from the Jerusalem Council, not only the centrality of the gospel and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but we also see the need to protect and guard the gospel. And we have to stand for it. We've got to always be governed By God's word. We must learn the lessons of the council. Here's two lessons and I'm done. Ready? First lesson. We must never abandon the gospel of grace. I mean really that's what we've learned in Acts 15. You can't abandon the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. It comes apart from the works of the law. Romans chapter 3. By the works of the law will no man be made right with God. Plain and simple. Job said this in Job 9. After he had dealt with God a little while, in Job 9.1, Job says, I got a question. How can man be right with God? And Job learned. He said, if I washed myself with snow water, I can't be clean. If I had 10,000 words to say to God in the court of law, I would not win one time. Why? Because you need a mediator. And Job knew this. He said, God, I need a daysman. I need somebody to put his hand on me and on God and mediate my case. That's what Jesus did. He is the daysman. Okay? He is the one that saves. And Job was asking for that Redeemer. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that Redeemer. You cannot be right with God apart from Jesus Christ. Can't bend on that, folks. There's only one way to the Father. It's through the Son. I don't care what cult or schism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, doesn't matter, Hare Krishna, whatever that might be. If they teach any other way to get to the Father other than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, it is a cult. Right? We must stand on that truth and not be in. Why? Because Jesus' work on Calvary is sufficient to save sinners. Anytime, anywhere, any place, Jesus' blood. We're going to preach that one day in Hebrews. If you think Acts was long, just wait to Hebrews. But I'm going to give you a few years before we dive into that one. By the way, uh, along this lines of the gospel of grace, uh, I want to remind you that you've got to rest your hope and faith in the grace of Jesus and Him alone. And I don't know what you're resting your confidence in this morning, but if your confidence and your rest is not in Jesus Christ and His grace alone, that is sufficient to save you from your sins... And folks, you really don't have any hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The righteousness I need, I don't have on my own. It has to be given to me as a gift. How can a man be right with God only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work? Is atonement made for us and our sins forgiven. So never abandon the grace, gospel of grace. And then secondly... We must lovingly preserve the unity of the body. What does that mean? There's going to be times in which Christians should abstain from certain liberties in order to maintain peaceful, social interactions with others. You know, Christians have strong consciences, don't we? But you can never violate the conscience of a weaker brother or sister, according to Romans 14, and be walking God's way. If you intentionally violate someone that has a different understanding or conscience and you treat that weaker brother in the wrong way and cause him or her to stumble, then you're in sin. So we need to limit our liberty out of love for the weaker brethren. John Newton, do you all know who he is? He wrote what great hymn? Amazing Amazing Grace. Here's what he said about Paul's dual commitment to the gospel. But on the flip side, his charitable flexibility with others. Paul was a reed in non-essentials and an iron pillar in essentials. That's what we need to be at this church. We will not be moved when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how a person is saved. But there are some non-essentials that we don't mind acting a little bit like a reed blown in the wind on non-essentials. Okay? Let's be an iron pillar on the gospel. And let's be charitable to others regarding non-essentials for the good of the church, for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and for His glory to spread among the nations. Now, in the month of July... We don't have Sunday night service, and we don't have Wednesday night. We got Bible school, several things, so we figured out that this would be the best way to handle it. Well, in the month of July, I'm also going to take a break from Acts for four weeks, and we're going to talk about some of these non-essentials and essentials when it comes to Christian liberty. You need to know where your pastor stands on these things. So I'm really excited on July 1st to preach to you on Sunday morning about where Christian liberty starts. That's where we miss it. Our first conclusion is, oh, can I drink wine? Can I go dance? Can I go to the movies? If that's your first thought, then you don't know what liberty is. Your first thought ought to be, I was dead and trespassed and sin. But the king of glory came down to redeem my heart and set me free. That's Christian liberty, to be in Jesus Christ. So July 1st, 8th, 15th, 22nd, is that right? We'll deal with Christian liberty as piggybacking off what we see in this text. And then I'm going to come back to Acts uh, probably the last Sunday in July, and we're going to motor on through the whole book. Not by Christmas, but we will do it. All right? Here's the deal Are you resting in the grace of Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins? It's not a list of do's and don'ts, it's a list of surrender to Jesus. It's an issue of trust in Christ alone for salvation. Grace is the love of God reaching out to the undeserved. But we're in that camp, aren't we? So undeserving, yet I became an object of His grace, chosen by God. Would you surrender to Him? And possibly, the second point needed to be heard by some of you because you're highly judgmental on non-essentials. If that Christian doesn't line up with the way you think they ought to line up, and you really don't have any biblical precedent, you just say, that's my opinion, and I don't like it. Well, you need to repent of that. And you need to be charitable toward one another. Why? Because God's glory is more important than your little bitty opinion. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, I thank you for this text. I know it's difficult in our day for someone to digest what I just read. Lord, but it's your word, and I have to preach it. Lord, but it's pretty clear in this text that we cannot abandon the grace of Jesus in the gospel. We know we can only be saved by Jesus' work on Calvary. Through repentance and faith in Jesus, and belief in what he did, and who he is. Lord, there are some non-essentials that really get stuck in our crawl sometimes. And Lord, let that not be a test of fellowship between brothers and sisters. There are, either some, there are also some theological understandings that some have and some don't have. God, we have to be charitable to one another when we see both taught in the Word clearly. We have to be charitable. We have to love one another. Your kingdom advancements, advancement depends upon it. Lord, I pray that we uh, would be iron, strong iron when it comes to the gospel charitable with non-essentials. And Father, again, if there's someone in this building that's not resting in the grace of Jesus, oh Lord God, may they do it today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.